everyone. Uh, this is Cody, and you're listening to the Cantus Firmus podcast. Um, and uh, hope, hopefully, uh, those of you who are uh, who have been listening and uh, um, are enjoying the uh, podcast I've been doing related to theological and philosophical uh, analysis and themes in films. Uh, but I'm sort of stopping for a uh, moment to um, do something I've um, been interested in and have written about a little bit in the past. And um, um, thought it would be a cool thing to discuss in the podcast, and um, it's also something I'm um, going to be talking about at a church some point soon. So, uh, kind of pulled together all my notes and uh, thought it would be a good idea to get it here as well. So, the topic is the uh, the biblical feasts, the Jewish feasts, um, particularly those that are in the um, described in the Torah and the first five books of the Bible. Um, there are other feasts that come later, like Hanukkah and uh, Purim, which are fascinating, um, but not um, some of the, you know, not necessarily the original, um, original feasts um, that are kind of put together there in the Mosaic period. So um, I'm focusing on those now. And um, so basically the, you know, what they did that was um, um, beneficial for the people at the time was they created sort of this yearly rhythm of devotion and uh, thankfulness to God uh, in a sort of a similar way that, um, you know, those who keep like a church calendar now uh, in sort of more high church type situations, um, you know, similar kind of thing. You, you get any sort of rhythms of um, um, thankfulness and, and, and reflection. And so in any case, um, they were sort of viewed in the New Testament era, or not sort of, they were, <laughs> Um, as pointing forward to Christ, uh, particularly Paul uh, mentions this in Colossians two sixteen and uh, seventeen. So you know, even though it's it's common for Christians to kind of look over or, or overlook the Old Testament, especially when it comes to details which don't seem immediately relevant to their daily lives, I, I think that um, it can be demonstrated that there is uh, significance and consistency in the entirety of the Word of God, not just uh, stuff in the New Testament or Paul's epistles or whatever, what have you. So, um, and I think that one place this can be demonstrated is an issue that's generally overlooked or seen as not particularly um, relevant, and that's the issue of the biblical feasts. Now, they've kind of been segment, segmented and counted in, in different ways, but I think the simplest way to think about them is to divide them um, into two categories, the spring feasts and the fall feasts. The spring feasts um, include Passover, unleavened bread, uh, Pentecost. Um, some would consider first fruits to be a, a biblical spring feast as well, um, but uh, as we'll get into later why that's somewhat disputed. But it's the very least kind of uh, whether or not it's a feast. It's the very least at this time period. Um, you know, these Jewish feasts, they kind of jump around uh, on the calendar if, if you look at them from our point of view, because um, the Jewish people used a lunar calendar and we use a solar one, so not everything matches up. But generally speaking, uh, Passover and Unleavened Bread, uh, they'll happen within a month of Easter um, in the Jewish month of Aviv, or Abib, uh, also known as Nisan, and that roughly corresponds to our month, uh, April. And Pentecost takes place somewhere in May or June, and uh, as you might have guessed, may have guessed from the name, it takes place 50 days. Um, <laughs> uh, that's why it's called Pentecost, uh, 50 days after um, First Fruits. Now, there are also the fall feasts that include trumpets uh, or Rosh Hashanah, 
There's also the Day of Atonement, which is called Yom Kippur. Uh, then there is the Feast of Tabernacles, which is called Sukkot. And these feasts are in the Jewish month of Tishrei, um, and they usually occur around September or October if you're using our calendar. So uh, I'd like to maybe focus first off on the uh, Passover and Unleavened Bread. Um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread lasts for seven days, and um, it goes from um, in the month of Nisan, day days 15 uh, through 21. And uh, one of its requirements is kind of simple, and that's that uh, no bread made with leaven will be eaten. Um, and the purpose of that is so that they will identify themselves with their ancestors um, and with the redemption that God provided for them uh, in Egypt when they had to leave the land in haste and uh, did not have time to um, uh, leaven their bread and wait for it to rise. So it's actually uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is kind of inaugurated by Passover, and uh, that's celebrated during the last part of the 14th day of Nisan with a Seder meal. At least that's, that's you know, how, how it's been done uh, since. <laughs> so uh, Passover famously commemorates God passing over the Jewish people in Egypt for judgment. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, which gives instructions for the first Passover, asks that each household set aside a male lamb on the 10th of Nisan, um, one that was without blemish. On the 14th, the whole assembly um, would kill it at twilight, placing its blood on their doorposts and eating its meat roasted with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. These instructions had to be followed exactly because God warned, and this is a quote from Exodus 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And quote. God then commanded the Israelites observe this feast from generation to generation to commemorate how uh, God passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt. Now, going forward to the New Testament, Paul and Peter both refer to Jesus using this language of Passover in order to describe his death on the cross uh, to redeem us from sin and from the power of death, telling us that, uh, quote, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and, uh, quote, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, unquote, 1 Peter 1.18. Jews today celebrate the Passover with a meal called the Seder, as I mentioned, and they think of it as, and this is a quotation from uh, the Family Haggadah, which is a popular uh, contemporary Seder guide from the Art Scroll Mizora series. They describe uh, um, this Passover Seder meal as, quote, a celebration of history, the past, and the future. Though we Jews always learn from our past, we simultaneously look ahead to a future of spiritual perfection, end quote. It also says that, quote, the Exodus represented a twofold liberation from physical enslavement and from spiritual degradation. The nation as a whole was cleansed of both blemishes, and that as a result, quote, every Jew should regard himself as though he were freed from Egyptian slavery, end quote. Since the New Testament tells us that the Last Supper was a Passover meal, and that its symbols were given fulfillment in what Christ accomplished for us, we can also apply this lesson to our celebration of communion, 
We are united to every Christian throughout history by our celebration of what Christ accomplished for us, uh, just as the Jews think of the Seder in that way. The redemption which was found on the cross is our redemption, just as if we'd been there to receive it. And our body is joined to Christ to be one with him, just as if we had eaten his flesh and drank his blood. Um, so that is you know, one, one pretty key element uh, that can be gleaned when you're comparing the Jewish um, celebration of Passover with the uh, Christian observance of communion. Now, there's so much more that can be said about Passover, um, you know, particularly in regard to the symbolism in the Seder. Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> can't get into it too much at this point, but um, it, it, it's fascinating. I, um, particularly um, the details as far as the um, three pieces of matzah that are held together and they're sort of thought of as, as a unity. And there's different interpretations uh, throughout the throughout the ages the rabbis have had about what those represent Abraham Isaac and Jacob perhaps um, but in any case the second piece is pulled out um, it is broken in half um, and part of it uh, which is called the afikomen is uh, hidden away uh, somewhere and then brought back uh, later in the seder later in the seder <laughs> um, and what's so kind of fascinating about this is it, it um, very much uh, corresponds to the Christian viewpoint that God is Trinity and that the second person of the Trinity comes down, comes out, um, unifies himself with humanity, and then is broken and hidden away or buried and then raises back. So there's so many really fascinating things about that, but we're going to move forward a little bit here. Uh, this is just kind of a general um, survey. So now there's first fruits, and it's not generally considered to be a distinct feast since it didn't uh, require um, a holy convocation. Uh, that's the language used in the text and the, in the uh, Torah. Um, but it, it takes place during unleavened bread on Nisan 16, which we would reckon as two days after Passover in Nisan 14. But using uh, Jewish reckoning, uh, that would be three days because the 14, 14, 15, and 16, part of a day is considered a day. So in the days when the temple still stu stood, the first fruits of the food harvest um, that God provided to his people were brought to the priest, and it was waved before God. And from this day, uh, uh, 50 days were counted to when the new offering would be waved. And we refer to that 50 days, um, that feast 50 days later as Pentecost. It's, of course, no coincidence that Jesus' resurrection happened on this day. And Paul makes reference to the feast day's language to talk about Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. And here's what he says. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. First, uh, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. End quote. So because Christ is the first fruits, that means that others will necessarily follow. Um, in receiving, just as he did, a perfect resurrection body. First fruits is a symbol of Jesus' resurrection, but it also looks ahead to our own. I move on to Pentecost. Pentecost uh, takes place on the sixth day of the Jewish month of Sivan, uh, 50 days after first fruits. The main part of this feast is a wave offering, um, just as with first fruits, of bread, but this time it's actually bread baked with leaven. 
If leaven is a symbol for sin, as is suggested by Jesus in Luke 12.1 and Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 5.7, this is an interesting contrast. Because the Feast of Unleavened Bread, leaven is absolutely forbidden. And, um, you know, so if we were to use an analogy here, um, if Jesus is the offering of unleavened bread of Passover, um, then he's without leaven, so he's sinless. But this offering is not. That this feast has some fulfillment in Christ is suggested by Christ himself in Acts uh, 1, 4 through 5, where he tells his followers uh, to wait in Jerusalem for the gift that the Father promised and explains that they will be, quote, baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This, of course, happened during the Feast of Pentecost. This is important. Christ says, wait, because there's something that's supposed to happen on this day. And that suggests that Christ has a very specific idea in his head um, about the purpose of this feast, feast and what it means and how it will be fulfilled. On this Pentecost, um, where they are waiting for the Holy Spirit, according to the orders of Jesus, we read that the disciples, uh, quote, were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other languages, other tongues, uh, as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's Acts 2, 1 through 4. The strongest imagery in the scene, it, it, one that's very evocative that sticks with you, is the tongues of fire that settle on the apostles, filling them with the Holy Spirit and enabling them to speak the word of God. Keep that imagery in mind as we move forward. Now, Pentecost is a Greek word meaning 50, as I mentioned, but the Hebrew word for this feast is Shavuot, um, or harvest. Where first fruits celebrated the first of what would surely come later, Shavuot is the realization of a promise, that promise that goes back to first fruits. In the Pentecost of Acts chapter 2, 3,000 souls were brought to God and united to Jesus' death and resurrection for forgiveness of sins. Now, it's widely accepted in Jewish tradition that the giving of the law on Mount Sinai happened during Pentecost. That this idea was behind the Pentecost of Acts 2, um, or what happens on it, can be gleaned from key similarities between Exodus 19 and Acts 2. Exodus 19.2, we read that Israel was encamped together before Sinai. Similarly, in Acts 2, the disciples uh, were all with one accord in one place. Um, it's also here that God gives man, uh, Moses the Ten Commandments written on stone with his own finger. The prophet Jeremiah would later reflect on this covenant written by God in stone and foresee a new one to come, where God declared that, quote, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and that's in Jeremiah 31. But as for the Old Covenant, or this beginning of this Old Covenant uh, that we read in Exodus 19, uh, we read that, um, uh, quote, All the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they were moved and stood afar off. And that's actually in Exodus 20, verse 18. Now, the word here for lightnings is lapid, and it refers to a torch or a lamp in every instance in the Old Testament, except for seemingly this one, where it's translated lightnings. Similarly, the word for thunderings is coal, and it's almost always translated as voice or sound, though it's properly translated as thunder in a number of places in the Old Testament, where that's pretty obviously the meaning. 
This, along with the fact that the passage describes the Israelites as seeing the thunder and lightning, is probably the reason why an Aramaic translation of this passage, called Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, understood it this way. Quote, the first word when it came forth from the mouth of the Holy One, may his name be blessed, was like shooting stars, like lightning, and like flames of fire, flying and floating in the air of the heavens. It returned and was seen over the camps of Israel. It circled around and was engraved on the tablets of the covenant that had been given into the palm of Moses' hand. End quote. In other words, the giving of the law was viewed as being accompanied not with thunder and lightning, but with visible words of fire, which wrote the law of God onto stone. It's certainly, therefore, no accident that the book of Acts speaks of God initiating a new covenant by writing his law on our hearts with tongues of fire. And it does so with a harvest of believers from all, Jewish believers at this point, from all over the world who were gathered together for this feast in Jerusalem. So now we've worked to the spring feast. Now we move into the fall feasts. And the first is the Feast of Trumpets. And uh, um, so the spring feasts uh, seemed very much to point forward to the first coming of Messiah. And there's some evidence um, that these fall feasts um, point forward to his second coming. Now, second coming stuff is, you know, all this eschatology end time stuff is, Real tricky, but I think there are some some good reasons to to assume that there is a connection here, even even though um, it's difficult to discern exactly <laughs> what all this stuff is going to look like. So, trumpets um, is referred to in contemporary Juda Judaism as Rosh Hashanah, which means head of the year, and it's called this because it begins the Jewish civil calendar. Um, now, this is actually it's in the, the, the first month, the first day of the first month. Um, the month is actually called Tishrei, but it's not the first month of the religious calendar. It's actually the seventh month. The first month is the month that has Passover, but it's being referred to here as the as the beginning of the year. This was explained by rabbis, uh, many rabbis, with the conjecture that it took place on the anniversary of the creation of Adam and Eve. So that that made it so that it was appropriate to refer to it as starting a new year. So. For the Christian, looking forward to its fulfillment, this actually is kind of interesting because um, for us, it actually points forward to the inauguration of a new creation. Now, Leviticus 23, 23 through 25 gives us some instructions, uh, or at least gave some instructions to the Jewish people for its observance. And it reads, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, <laughs> In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. End quote. So this trumpet symbol, it's sometimes used in the Old Testament uh, to announce coming judgment. Uh, for instance, Joel 2 uh, verse 1 reads, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. It's also used to proclaim the coronation of kings. Um, just name a couple examples, 2 Samuel 15.10 and 2 Kings 9.13, if you want to look those up. And the New Testament um, similarly uh, uses this imagery of the trumpet um, um, in a somewhat different way. It ties it to the end times, the end of times. 
For instance, Matthew 24, 31 says that Christ, quote, will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other, end quote. And Paul writes of the end times in this way in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, quote, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, end quote. In the Siddur, which is a commonly used Jewish prayer book, um, the uh, regular Sabbath prayers, when said between trumpets and the Day of Atonement, which is the feast immediately following it, uh, or very soon following it, these Sabbath prayers are actually modified between trumpets and um, Yom Kippur, and they're modified to emphasize the kingship of God. Of course, in the Jewish mind, God is always king, but during this time, special attention is drawn to this attribute of his. Likewise, our Lord's second coming will demonstrate to everyone's satisfaction that Christ is king. Now, moving on to the Day of Atonement, uh, Leviticus chapter 16 gives us the instructions um, for its keeping. Uh, it takes place on the 10th day of Tishrei, and it opens, uh, Leviticus 16 opens, by noting that God's presence resided uh, in the most holy place in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was. As a result, anyone who entered it would certainly die. But on Yom Kippur, the high priest would bring in the blood of a sacrifice and sprinkle it on the lid of the Ark, and that was called the mercy seat. In doing so, he would atone for the people of Israel. He was also to set aside a live goat called the scapegoat, which would be sent into the wilderness with the sins of Israel on its head. Chapter 23 of the same book adds that the day is meant for Israelites to, quote, humble their souls, end quote, or else be cut off from their people. The Day of Atonement um, highlights the reality that God is merciful and forgiving, but that repentance is a prerequisite for the forgiveness of our sins. Yom Kippur seems uh, to look forward to the Day of Judgment, which follows the second coming of Christ. Jewish tradition holds that one's fate for the coming year is written in the Book of Life on Rosh Hashanah, or trumpets, and that the verdict is sealed on Yom Kippur. In the intervening days, called the Days of Awe, the faithful will seek the forgiveness of God hoped for um, on the Day of Atonement. This process usually entails a great deal of self-examination. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews makes much of Yom Kippur to show, well, actually to show its weakness. He points out that whereas the high priest would have to make atonement for his sins and the sins of the people year after year entering the most holy place in great fear, Jesus, our high priest, made atonement once and for all, tearing the veil so that we could approach the presence of God boldly. If we're in Christ, our day of judgment will not be a terrifying one, but a blessed one. Indeed, Christ, quote, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, end quote according to Hebrews 7.25. He has both paid the penalty for our sin and pushed it far away from us, just like the scapegoat, into the wilderness. And now we have the last feast, Tabernacles. According to Leviticus 23, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, or booths as it's sometimes called, in Hebrew it's called Sukkot, um, was observed on the 15th day of Tishrei. Um, it marked the final gathering of the produce of the land, and it lasted for seven days. The Israelites were to observe it by living in tabernacles or temporary shelters. According to Leviticus 23.43, it was supposed to remind Israel that their ancestors lived in temporary shelters when God brought them out of slavery in Egypt. 
There are a handful of New Testament allusions to this feast. For instance, uh, John 1.14 tells us that God became flesh and, quote, tabernacled among us. But this is only part of the story. Revelation 21.3-4 speaks of the new heaven and the new earth to come in this way, quote, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away, end quote. According to John chapter 7, Jesus kept this feast, and he preached on a theme related to a ritual which developed in its observance called the water-drawing ceremony. Now, in this ceremony, water was drawn and poured onto the altar. According to John 7, 37 through 39, quote, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified, end quote. Perhaps John also had this observance in mind when he wrote of God's invitation in the new earth in this way, in Revelation 21.6. Quote, To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life, end quote speaking in the next chapter of, quote, the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, end quote. The Mishnah, um, which is a, a, a collection of uh, Jewish oral tradition um, that would uh, kind of later be um, uh, given additional commentary and collected under uh, the Talmud. Well, Anyway, in any case, the Mishnah in chapter 5 of uh, its section Sukkah under the tractate Moed also notes that during the water-drawing festival, Jerusalem was lit up brightly, even at night, saying um, that, quote, there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not illuminated by the light of the place of water-drawing, end quote. Perhaps this is why Jesus proclaimed during this feast Quote, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In uh, John 8, 12. Perhaps it's also why John wrote of the new earth in this way. Quote, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Revelation 22, 5. Someday, when we find ourselves dwelling upon a new, restored earth, we will look back to God delivering us from our own slavery to sin as we lived in the temporary dwellings which we had before God gave uh, raised us up uh, in, in, in eternal glorified bodies. In this new world, we will dwell with God in peace because he fir first dwelt with us to make peace between God and man in the person of Christ Jesus. And that's what I think Tabernacles is at least partly pointing forward to. So I hope that this has been helpful or uh, informative for everyone uh, who's listened. Um, there's obviously more, more, more research you can do. I would say be somewhat cautious because you know, when you're dealing with symbolism like this, you'll find everybody and his brother trying to say, well, this means this, and this is a symbol for that. And uh, sometimes it can get a, a little bit tedious and a bit of a stretch. Sounds really good and you know, until you start to really look at it. 
but there is absolutely so much that's that's here that's that's really worth looking at and thinking about um so um thank you again for listening um if you find any of these podcasts helpful i really encourage you to um, share them with friends or family or, or whomever uh, that you think would be interested in, in some of these topics. So if you have any questions, you're absolutely welcome to email me at uh, Cody, C-O-D-Y, at cantus-firmus.com. Um, and uh, thank you again.